State Representative Paul Kurtman just finished up a very eventful fifth year in the Missouri General Assembly, and now he's looking forward to an eventful 2016. The Franklin County Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our very special guest for the day... Paul Kurtman. Welcome back to the show. It's been about two years since we last had you on. It was a wildly successful show, given your your <laughs> legions of fans across the state and the nation. Yeah, just so our listeners know, this is a state rep. Very influential, active in the budget issues, and you're from Franklin County, correct? I'm Union? from Franklin County. Uh, I live in Union, Missouri. Yeah, and, and he d- recently had became a father. I did. I did. My son Oliver was born about three, almost three and a half weeks ago. I, I, I will, uh, as a as a fellow dad, I congratulate you. Thank you. And you should look forward to never sleeping again. Um, <laughs> it does change. Trust me. It, it gets better. It gets better. I promise. Well, I love it. It's a new kind of tired, and I've lo- been looking forward to it for a long time. So, well, congratulations. Congratulations Thank again. You. So it's been in it. This is your fifth year in the legislature. You represent a district that I think takes in a chunk of Franklin County, essentially. Mm-hmm. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And uh, it's been a very eventful fifth year in the legislature for you. Is that fair to say? It's fair. To, it's probably fair to say that for the whole legislature. I would say so. eventful. Well, especially the House. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I just got to ask, you know, we've been, we've had a bunch of people on the show, including the new speaker, Todd Richardson, to kind of ask about their perceptions of the last week of session. I know it's now November. It's kind of old news. But I am interested to hear your take on what happened in the last week of session and kind of your um, feelings going forward about Todd Richardson as speaker. Yeah, framing it in terms of the legislature going back into session in January. Sure. Well, the, the last week of last session uh, – was uh, it was a whirlwind of activity and questions. Um, you know, obviously our speaker, uh, John Deal, had resigned the second to last day of yes. session. And, and leading up to that, you know, I don't, I don't always uh, run in all the crowds that do a lot of talking or a lot of gossiping. So a lot of the news was new to me um, uh, when a lot of us found out what had been taking place. And uh, uh, long story short, Speaker Richardson was elected on the very last day of session, and uh, I think most of the chamber probably felt really bad for him coming in under those circumstances with all the pressure you know, that he was facing uh, regarding the session that we had with the right to work, knowing that we're, right. this was going to be a veto override that we were probably going to have to try to face off with uh, in the veto session. But uh, to his credit, he has handled it uh, with a lot of grace and uh, a lot of strength. And I'm really looking forward to uh, the leadership that he offers over the, ne- the next three years because uh, we anticipate him being reelected to the speaker's position. And, and I think that that actually gives him a very unique position to be able to uh, govern from that position for three years as opposed to two. Now, you came into the legislature with Todd Richardson. Is that correct, first of all? I did. And there was always a lot of promise around him. His dad was a, a, a highly influential legislator. A lot of people had a lot of great things to say about his legislating ability. But as you kind of mentioned, he wasn't expected to become speaker until, I think, 2017. So when he's thrust into this position after some controversy involving his predecessor, 
a lot of pressure on him to change a lot of things, not only policy-wise, but also the climate in Jefferson City as well. How, how effective do you think he's going to be in just the legislature as a whole to making things better for, for women and for everybody in the General Assembly? I, I think he's going to, uh, I think he, of everybody in the legislature, you know, there's 163 representatives that we have on the House side. And I think under these circumstances, there might not be anybody better suited for this task than Todd Richardson. Um, like I like I said before, the way he handled the transition and his election under those circumstances really demonstrated a lot of strength of character. And I think that that uh, just goes to show um, how capable he is and the ability that he has in handling difficult situations and just working to improve them. Uh, I thought it uh, uh, showed a tremendous degree of statesmanship when he first was elected on the last day of session. And he immediately said, I'm not here to make a, a speech. Um, we're here to do the work. He said there will be time for speeches later, and I think that that really uh, showed a, a great a great deal of statesmanship that he would actually prioritize the success of the House over what would have otherwise been a really uh, moment, for, a glorious moment, you know, for anybody being elected to that position. Now, one of the hallmarks, I think, of that whole controversy and the one later, which forced a Democratic state senator from the western side of the state to step down, was the power of social media. And that's increasingly, you're seeing it in everything, but especially in politics and now in government. Mm -hmm. As a younger member of the General Assembly and someone who's seen some of the changes as far as technology, I mean, how do you think social media and some of this other stuff is affecting government and things going forward? That, that's a great question. And it's something that I think uh, anybody in office anywhere should really pay attention to uh, the effect that social media has. Um, I think that what it's doing now is it's changing the culture in the sense that people really need to be on their toes. They need to make sure uh, uh, that they're very careful of the things that yeah, – I think I think it's a double-edged sword. I think on one degree it lets people know that there's going to be a greater degree of scrutiny and accountability for their own personal behavior and the votes they take. But on the other hand, uh, one thing I'm afraid of is I'm afraid it's going to make politicians do more political speak Okay. where where it is that they're, they're afraid to, to be more forthcoming – uh, with their answers for fear of what somebody else might say, spin it, or use it before they even have a chance to go from the legislature uh, back home on the drive at the end of the week. Because I think you're actually pretty active on social media, and you've mm -hmm. actually prided yourself on being responsive on Twitter and Facebook. And that's how, as we, as you, as people know, both from your first election and from our last show, social media is one of the reasons you're arguably in politics today because a speech that you made at a Claire McCaskill. Right. Uh, event went viral through social media. So th that must be something that you've been thinking about as somebody who uses it pretty often. Yeah. It, it, anything that you say can transmit itself across the state, across the nation, across the world in really just a matter of minutes. Um, earlier this week, I put a, uh, a post on my Facebook page and, uh, and I was out of state. And then my wife sends me a text and says, wow, that post is really blowing up. And when I checked it, it had about 100 shares. So that's 100 wow. different people that had taken a post on, on my, my Facebook page. And they actually took my post from my page and they put it on their page for all of their audience to see. And so things can just really, really spread really fast. And uh, I think politically, I think it's good for the, the transmittal of information. Um, uh, I think it helps for transparency's sake. I think it helps for accountability. Um, but like I said, I think they, the, the double-edged part of that sword is I think it might make politicians a little bit uh, less forthcoming 
when when we're trying to get answers out of people. Now, is it was that post on the Syrian refugee situation? Yes. Let's mm-hmm. let's let's use that as a transition into that because it's become a hot topic not only in Missouri but around the country. Sure. Just for our listeners, um, many of the governors throughout the country have been asked whether they should quote unquote block Syrian refugees from their borders and. We could go into a whole show about whether that's possible or not, mm-hmm. but I get, I think what's indisputable is I guess state aid could be provided to them in certain instances. Yeah, although in many cases you have private groups, you know, like in St. Louis, it's private groups who handle this, Catholic Charities and some others who handle any aid from refugees. But I'm interested in your take on that, but also how, really, how do you track, you know, uh, a refugees' movements once they've gotten through the screening process and gotten in the United States? Um I mean, how's the state going to know? So I'm interested mm-hmm. in your kind of look on that as well as the arguments for and against. Sure. Well, just to address that point right there, just about how do you track somebody, uh, a lot of times our own uh, judicial system or law enforcement community has a hard enough time tracking people that are on parole. Um, so uh, if, if anybody's under the impression that if we bring refugees into the country that we'll, we'll be able to keep them accountable and always know where they are, uh, we probably won't. Correct. And, and I would even go so far as to argue that if anybody has American citizenship, um, unless they've broken a law, we probably shouldn't be tracking people. Uh, but as far as the whole refugee situation goes, um, I don't know exactly what the positions of all the governors are, but my own position on this is it's a very unfortunate circumstance, and my heart goes out to these people. Uh, but I think as Americans engaged in a war on terror, one of the things that we have to be cognizant of uh, is the fact that there's a, there's a nation on the other side of the planet called Syria that's engaged in a civil war. One half of that uh, conflict, has many of those people have already declared a holy war or jihad on the U.S. So I think we need to uh, exercise our due diligence, and I think that we need to have an extremely thoughtful, uh, profound vetting process if, in fact, we do bring any of them to the United States. Uh, I'm not saying that America does not have a role. I believe America does have a role in this situation. Uh, People all across the world still look to America for leadership, especially in situations like this. But under these particular circumstances, it would require that we we really uh, uh, adjust um, the scrutiny of of anybody that we bring in under these particular circumstances where we don't know who they are. And and it's also important to, to address the fact that a couple of years ago, we were having the debate whether or not we should be arming uh, the Syrian rebels. And right. many of these people might be of the Syrian rebels. And, and we didn't even know who the rebels were. And it turns out many of them, in fact, were uh, ISIS fighters who are also fighting the Assad regime. So uh, there's so much that we don't know. So if we do bring any of them over, we need to do it very slowly, thoughtfully, and deliberately. And I would argue that we're not there yet. And so until we have a process in place, we should we should put the pause button on, as our congressional leaders like to say. Should religion play a role in that? Because I know there have been some uh, Republicans in particular who have said we should give preference to the Syrian Christians who were already facing discrimination before Mm -hmm. all this happened. Uh, Others think that's kind of reprehensible. But I'm curious is your thoughts about that. Right. For example, one of your colleagues, Mike Moon, has garnered a lot of negative publicity for basically saying, and I'm, I'm quoting verbatim here, uh, he's specifically concerned about Muslim refugees lying to federal authorities in order to make their way into the country. And this is a direct quote from him. And from what I've seen, a practicing Muslim comes in all flavors, black, white, brown, yellow, American, African, European, et cetera, et cetera. 
a white lie would could allow the individual to pass through the vetting process. I mean, that caused a lot of people to get upset when he said that. And he also talked about refugee camps as well. Obviously, that's a long expo- piggyback onto yeah, that. Yeah, but, but I am curious about this because, I mean, we ran into this a little over 20 years ago and so forth, and we were dealing with the whole Bosnian situation. You know, who do we let in? Mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, that was a basically a religious battle, you know, and so now we have a number of Bosnian, tens of thousands of Bosnians in St. Louis area, many of whom are Muslims. So anyway, I'm just interested in your take on that and the call to maybe give preference to Syrian Christians. Um, I would probably say first and foremost that in a situation like this, uh, a refugee situation should be first come first serve. Uh, I know that the uh, Christian Syrians, uh, Christians in Iraq, Christians in Darfur, where they were under a, a massive uh, pressure uh, that was going straight down the road of total genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that any any Christians who are in line to seek asylum in the U.S., I don't think that they should be put on the back burner. I know that we've had several Christians from the Middle East trying to make their way here as refugees. And uh, from what I understand, and of course, I don't, not being in, in the, uh, working in the federal uh, realm. Um, I don't know exactly what these timelines look like, but I do know that uh, uh, it's been very difficult, if not impossible, for a lot of Christian refugees to be able to make their way to the U.S. Um, I don't believe that religion, I don't believe that religion, race, gender, or anything, I don't think we should be putting anybody in any particular category. I think as Americans, I think that we kind of might betray some of our founding principles when we begin to segregate people into different groups. So when it comes to the refugee status and uh, uh, re- related to somebody's religion, I would say let's just do it on a first-come, first-serve basis. But when it comes to the Muslims from Syria under these specific circumstances, there has to be an extremely scrutinous, stringent vetting process because we know that they're coming from a country engaged in civil war and one side of that civil war has declared holy war on the U.S. And so that's that's my position. But no, generally speaking, I don't think that we ought to be segregating people into different groups. Yeah, I mean, because this has been getting some attention in the St. Louis area. I mean, maybe our listeners may not realize this, but we have large, older um, Lebanese and Christian Syrian populations who came here about 100 years ago. In fact, Mayor Slay is, you know, is, is part of the Lebanese, I mean, his grandparents. Mm-hmm came over and they were part of a whole Christian town that moved lock, stock and barrel. And most of them ended up in St. Louis about a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's just, this is something I've just been sort of following. Um, sure. And, and I understand representative moon's frustration. Uh, certainly do. Um, I'll, to be totally candid and honest with you, our, our president uh, seems to uh, um, try to put Christian Christianity in the same group as Muslim terrorists, whenever people begin to criticize certain Muslim populations for uh, not standing up against uh, the terrorist factions within mm-hmm. that religion. Uh, for example, during the prayer breakfast, when he tried to recall how everybody, how Christians a thousand years ago had gone into Israel. And so I think that there's, there's people among the Christian community in America uh, who believe that our president's not entirely friendly to uh, the Christian sentiments about what's going on. So I think that there's a lot of frustration and even a lot, probably a lot, of, a lot of confusion. But one of the fundamental principles of liberty is that people are treated equally under our laws. Well, what should the General Assembly do or not do? Um, 
That's a good question. Uh, right now, I think that there's a lot of leadership that we're, we're relying on our governor for a lot of leadership on this issue. Uh, there's a lot of debate right now over whether or not the governors have a, a legal right to push back against the federal government and not bring uh, uh, refugees into our state. And I would argue that the governors do have a legal right to, to push back. According to Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, the states are guaranteed a Republican form of government, meaning we have our own degree of autonomy. And according to the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, uh, power is not expressly given to the federal government, belong to the states. And so this power has not been expressly given to the federal government in the Constitution. So I would argue that there's uh, a legal argument to be made that our governors are fully within their right to push back against the federal government. And so we're really relying on our, on our governor right now to actually take some leadership in our state on this particular issue. I just kind of want to, again, play devil's advocate, because mm -hmm. while I would say a lot of Republicans take a very similar view to you, as well as Attorney General Chris Coster, who also called for a, a prudent pause right. in, in this. There are some Democrats who, like uh, Senator Jill Shoup, who issued a letter on the contrary. And usually I have sound clips, but this was in written form, so I'll just okay. read this right now. Syrian refugees seeking harbor in our country have been deeply oppressed. They are fleeing the terror of ISIS violence, not contributing to it. The refugees are mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. They, they are just like us, humans who deserve to be treated with utmost respect and liberty. They deserve health and safety. They deserve the same essential liberties envisioned and sought by our country's founders. And, you know, that's basically what the president is saying. That's what a lot of Democratic presidential mm -hmm. candidates are saying, that, you know, America has a reputation for being welcoming to oppressed people. Mm -hmm. And by taking this view that Syrian refugees should be restricted or not come in, you're kind of pushing back against that view. What, what's kind of your response Sure, I, I agree with her 100%. But one thing that you can't do is you cannot deny the reality of the situation happening in Syria right now and the terrorists that are involved in trying to exploit that situation in order to get their terrorist members or their factions or their foot soldiers in other parts of the world. Do you think the Paris attacks that we could go are having an impact on this on this discussion? Oh, I, cer I certainly do. Um, we know that uh, 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 one of the terrorists uh, who perpetrated that attack uh, was part of the Syrian refugee program to relocate. Um, we know that I was watching CNN earlier this week, and uh, there was a Syrian refugee who was being interviewed by a CNN reporter, and this refugee said, listen, ISIS, as soon as they took Raqqa in Syria, one of the things that we know that they did was they got their hands on 5,000 original but blank Syrian passports. So that means that we need to apply some uh, a little bit of accountability here. And I certainly don't disagree with Senator Shoup. I think that America, you know, we are the last bastion of freedom and safety for a lot of people in the world, but uh, we certainly can't undermine the safety of our own people by just applying a little bit of accountability and a little bit of scrutiny to make sure that the people that we're bringing in, that we have confidence that they don't have ties uh, to Islamic terrorism. So shifting gears a little bit, and this was actually something that came to mind now that we didn't discuss beforehand. Have you been following the stadium situation uh, in St. Louis at all? Yes, I have. So w one of the things that I've, I've obviously been following it because it's here and it's an all-consuming <laughs> beast of a news story. And there's obviously the city funding that's going on right now. But I know that a lot of legislators on both sides of the aisle are very upset with the prospect of Governor Jane Nixon's administration essentially issuing bonds for this project without a legislative or statewide vote. Are you one of those legislators who's upset with that? I am, I am upset with that. Yeah, I'm upset with that. Can you tell me if he ends up doing that, what is, do you think the reaction of the legislature will be when it comes to actually paying off those bonds? Um, it'll be mixed. And uh, I know that uh, several legislators have already said that they're going to fight 
um, any uh, any effort to appropriate money to paying off bonds that were uh, issued pretty much unilaterally by our governor. Um, so that's that's what I've heard from other legislators, and I, I don't blame them. They're trying to put pressure on the governor to not do this. And, and I would agree that uh, money spent like this is probably spent uh, inappropriately, and uh, it sure is being spent without uh, the approval of the voters. And I certainly think that we need the people of Missouri to be able to speak in on this issue. One of the people who has made the threat to block the bond payments is Senator Rob Schaff of St. Mm-hmm. Joseph. He told me flat out he doesn't care if it affects the credit rating of the state. In fact, for him, that's a good thing because they wouldn't borrow as much money anymore. He is not going to let bond payments through. And so when we played that clip to Alderman Jack Coder, who's sponsoring the financial plan, he had this to say. Well, I don't think I'm going to let a you know a legislator from St. Joe really influence the decision that I'm going to make for the, the people of the seventh ward in the city of St. Louis. Take I, that, St. Joe. Yeah, take that, St. Joe. Um, I do think it's pretty terrifying that you know uh, that Mr. Schaff said that he's willing to you know risk this, the credit rating of the state of Missouri just to prove a political point. I think that's really a, a dangerous proposition. So. Um, I will say that while there are legislators who take the view of Senator Schaff, I was talking with Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder, who's not in favor of what Nixon is doing, and he told me he's not exactly on board with not paying off state debt because there are constitutional requirements in the Missouri Constitution to pay off debt, no matter how bad of debt you may think it is. So as somebody who I think likes the Missouri Constitution and the U.S. Constitution, are you kind of conflicted on this one about how to proceed if you if you have to decide whether to pay off these bonds or not? Well, first of all, uh, we have to follow the Constitution. And so uh, what the Constitution says in relation to our debt is something that every legislature should, should follow. Uh, I certainly understand, and I agree with Senator Schaff, um, that, that this is money that has to go, should be going to a vote of the people. Uh, this kind of debt being spent uh, on a private enterprise, but then being burdened and financed by the labor and the taxes of the people uh, is is not something that I'm in favor of generally. Just as a rule of thumb, I don't believe that our tax dollars should be going to private enterprise. Uh, um, and so, for Senator Senator Schaff to say that he's not going to that he's going to fight uh, paying the bonds, um, I understand I understand what he's doing. And for the the uh, gentleman of the seventh ward uh, to say that he's not gonna allow a senator from St. Joe to affect the decisions that he makes on behalf of the people in his ward. Uh, well, the senator from St. Joe is certainly trying to make decisions on behalf of the people out in his district who are going to be paying for this. So I think that there's obviously a conflict in ideas and a conflict of uh, what people believe the proper role of government is. And I would say that Senator Schaff is probably right in his assessment of the role of government. One thing that I think could break this this kind of deadlock or collision course, um, this is getting really in the weeds of NFL politics, but Right now, the Rams, the Chargers, and the Raiders are playing to reply for relocation. And I'm getting the sense that none of them have the votes to move, and they may actually delay it a year or two if that occurs. And if that occurs, you you may have enough time for the legislature to consider a package of bonds. I'm not sure how well it will be received, but it would at least allow the legislature to deal with that. And if it goes into 2017, maybe you have a different governor who has a completely different worldview of this entire situation than Nixon. So I don't know if, that, if, you've, if you've thought about that or if that's been discussed, but 
it seems like there are ways out of this, you know, Mm-hmm. devastating collision course. Sure. My, my way out of it, my way of choice is just the free market. Um, if there's a market here for a football team, uh, the people will gladly pay for it. They'll buy their tickets. They'll buy their passes. Businesses will relocate to the state. One thing that I learned from uh, 2008 when I first got my start in the, in the uh, financial services industry is that if somebody in the investment realm tries to eliminate or reduce the risk of an investment by just offering somebody free money, well, what that does is it actually distorts the merits of the investment, and it encourages people to make bad investment. Now, in the securities industry, you can get in big trouble for that. But when our state does it, we say, well, it's taxpayer money. There's plenty of it. We, we can go right back to this piggy bank that gets replenished every year. And, and so I think that we're, uh, we're going down the wrong road when we're trying to bring business or economic development to our state by using taxpayer dollars to finance private industry. Does this put some Republicans in a bind because um, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, some of the businessmen who are advancing you know, projects like this, where they're looking for state aid or local aid or whatever for states, often are, may, I mean, I'm, looking, I'm thinking of the Cardinals, for example, mm-hmm. uh, are major Republican donors. I mean, not in every case, but uh, the point I'm getting at is when you have caucuses discussing this, does that kind of issue come up? where you're having to deal with basically some people taking one view as far as uh, how uh, stadiums or state aid should be treated, and then others who are dealing with the business community, many of whom are Republicans. How much stress does that put on the party? Uh, I wouldn't say it puts a a lot of stress on the party. I I would definitely agree that we have some differences of opinion even within the Republican Party. I believe that whenever the state, okay, we have constitutionally, we have to take care of roads and education. So when we start discussing football politics, I would call that an epic fail of the state <laughs> government. I think that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been a big uh, uh, advocate. Well, I shouldn't say advocate, but you've been a major player in the state spending priorities. And uh, I've been one of the, you're on the Appropriations Committee, correct? Right. And uh, Which one, by the way? Uh, criminal Justice criminal okay. system. Yeah, but you also been you were also head of a, a committee which I think still exists having to do with kind of streamlining government. Yes, uh, the committee on government efficiency. Yes, so I'm interested in kind of your take now that you've been doing that for I think at least a year. Mm-hmm. Okay, kind of your your overview of what I mean, some people see you as the Missouri version of Paul Ryan. I mean, as far as you know, really looking is that, at is that like an insult now? I know a lot of conservative. <laughs> I, I know a lot of conservatives hate Paul Ryan now because of his immigration policies. So we got to be a little careful well, here no, in relation to is, uh, to his fiscal uh, focus. Okay. I mean, the idea being that he's focused a lot right. on this federal spending and that federal spending. So the point is, you've got kind of a reputation of spending a lot of time focusing on how the state spends its money. Mm-hmm. So I'm just interested in your take on how things stand. I mean, what you see going into the next session, things that you might be pushing as far as either cutbacks or redirecting, just sort of how you see it. Sure. Well, one of the things that uh, that I'm really going to be pushing is a, a mechanism to where, to where the state can apply a greater degree of accountability, or the legislature can, and through the, the people through the legislature can apply a greater degree of accountability on our bureaucracies and our state agencies. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I got to hold a, a hearing with uh, some officials from MoDOT, and we went over the last 10 years' worth of audits of MoDOT. And I asked some of the MoDOT officials, I said, has the legislature ever followed up before on any of these audits? And they said, no. 
And I would call that a moral transgression when we have a state auditor, whether it was, and we went over audits from Monty, McCaskill, and Schweik. It's a moral transgression for us to have a state auditor and we're spending all this taxpayer money auditing state agencies and departments, and then for the legislature not to follow up with any of the audits um, will probably just continue to foster an environment in which people feel free to spend money inappropriately. So I'm, I'm actually working on a bill right now that's going to require the legislature to follow up with any audit of a state department or agency within one year of the release of the audit. Now, Joe's question kind of popped something into my head because there are five gubernatorial candidates running now, and I'm sure a common refrain from many of them is going to be Republic, ending, yeah. I'm talking about Republicans, right. unless mm-hmm. there's five versions of Chris Coster <laughs> around. Some say there are, but we'll... Yikes. Let's, let's not go there. Um, you know, they're going to be saying, like, I'm going to cut wasteful spending and, you know, government in Jefferson City is out of control. And when I, I hear that type of language, I'm like, wait a second. The Republicans have been in charge of the legislature now for over 10 years. If there's wasteful spending or if there's inefficiencies, it seems like it's just as much of the Republicans' fault as it is Nixon's fault. So as somebody who deals with that all the time, what would you have to say to some of your Republican colleagues who want to be governor about how well the legislature and state government is doing about efficiency? Sure. Uh, well, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due, but you also got to place a little bit of the blame where the blame's due. And certainly the Republicans have been in charge. We, you know, it's, it's Republicans that chair the appropriations committees and the Correct. budget committees. Yeah. Uh, I think that what we need to do is we need to probably revamp a little bit of the way we address uh, how we appropriate and budget our money out. And we can look to other states. One thing that's great about America is we have 50 different states. Each is a laboratory, you know, of how we run state government. And uh, the state of Texas has a much more in-depth and profound way that they budget their money. They don't just write a uh, a, a check to a department or an agency would give them a little bit of flexible spending. They actually say, how much money do you need for this lease of this particular building? How much money do you need for the lease agreements of the, of the cars that you're renting? How much money do you need for your utility or energy costs? And I think that we need to actually examine the way we budget and make sure that we're much more careful. So other, Otherwise, we wind up having money that's spent inappropriately. Now, one of the things the governor has proposed within the last few weeks is uh, to shorten the legislative session. I mean, this is something that former state Senator uh, John Lamping had even suggested. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? Do you think that proposal might go anywhere? Uh, it's hard to say. I, I certainly wouldn't be against it. Uh, Texas, again, you know, they have a, a very short session once every two years. Yeah. And I think that that forces them to uh, have their priorities in order when they go to the House. I mean, sometimes from Republicans and Democrats, we wind up coming out to Jefferson City for five months. And in order to get something done, somebody will pass a bill to make jumping jacks the state exercise of Missouri. And it's I think just Rob ridiculous. Schoss sponsored that. So <laughs> I, I, I like jumping jacks, but continue. Yeah. So I, I think that, uh, you know, we're getting paid taxpayer dollars to go out and do a job. And it's a, it's a great honor and it's a privilege to be able to do it. But we need to do it. I had a drill instructor that told me one time, anything worth doing is worth doing right. And certainly the uh, the time that we spend in the legislature is worth doing right. Will right to work come up again next session or will it be delayed till after the election? Um, I, I do not know. I, I do not know. Do I'm, sure somebody, I'm sure somebody will introduce the bill. Uh, um, but is that more of like you're going to wait and see who the governor is after 2016? Because it seems like if you have a Republican governor, it's, it, it's over. Right to work will become law in Missouri. Mm-hmm. And I know that 
may be bad news to people that don't like right to work, but it's inevitable, I think. As as yeah, the if there's chairman, a Republican if there's a Republican governor. governor, as the chairman of the committee of government efficiency, the efficient thing to do for anybody that wants this bill to pass would be to wait for a Republican governor and maybe do it the way Michigan did it, where they got it through the House and they sent it straight to the governor's desk and he signed it. Um, uh, it certainly takes up a lot of time and energy. And there's a lot of people that are very passionate about this particular piece of legislation. I do not know whether or not it's going to come up right away next session. Well, let's talk a little bit about 2016 in our last five to seven minutes. Uh, you told me before the show you are running for your final term in the Missouri House. Is that correct? I am. Okay, so he will, we will not see you will not be the sixth person to be running for governor. I take it. Not yet. Not yet. Not uh, yet. I'm not planning on it. <laughs> what do you What do you kind of make of not only the gubernatorial primary, but also some of the other primaries that have emerged for, for statewide offices. Um, I know that, for example, for, for governor, you were you were a big fan of John Bruner in 2012. Um, some people may be looking to you for an endorsement in that in that race. Mm-hmm. What, what's kind of your, your, your take on that situation? I, I haven't made any uh, public endorsement yet. Um, I'm still just kind of waiting. I think that we have a lot of good candidates. A lot of times people go to the polls and they vote against everybody by voting for the lesser of two mm-hmm. evils. You know, we hear people talk like this all the time. But I really think that this time around, I think for governor and for other offices, I think the Republicans have a pretty good uh, pool to choose from. I think uh, Bruner certainly has his own merits. Uh, and he and the, and the people of Missouri know him very well. They know Peter Kinder very well. I mean, uh, he's already doing very well in the polls, and uh, I don't know how much money he spent, but I certainly doubt it's any more than any other candidate. Probably less. less and less. And, and the idea, mm-hmm. the 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 conventional wisdom is Kinder has to will be required to spend less money because he already has a lot of statewide so of name recognition. Name he ID. also has a reputation for working pretty hard, which would make him not only a a good candidate in a primary, but also potentially a general election. Right. I guess the wild card here, though, is Eric Greitens, who I think is attracting a lot of attention as an, a first-time candidate. Um, I think, though, some Republicans are skeptical because he used to be a Democrat, mm-hmm. and some people are questioning his conservative convictions. Um, what's kind of your thought on him? Yeah, and, and rightfully so. I, th- I say anybody who switches parties, uh, they, are in, they are due for some extra scrutiny, of course. Uh, one thing for sure is he has definitely been able to uh, demonstrate a command of his ability to generate resources. So in his campaign, he is he has uh, been able to I think at this point maybe even outraise everybody. Um, yeah, except for except for uh, Coster. Except for Coster. Say he and Coster have been close a few quarters, but mm-hmm. so far. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. costs are still prevailing. In, in, in uh, uh, Eric Greitens' challenge is just going to be able to. He he really has to go the extra mile to earn the trust of the of the people of our state because of his uh, previous party alignments and different positions or different candidates that he might have supported in the past. Would it be funny for people who follow Missouri politics if it was a Democrat turned Republican versus a Republican turned <laughs> Democrat and the general? <laughs> the would, voters, it, would it be very confusing? To I people? think the voters might be very confused. Yeah, possibly. because even though Coster is a Democrat, he still holds a lot of conservative positions on things. I mean, he was endorsed by the NRA in 2012. He has the Syrian refugee statement. He's against campaign finance limits. He has, um, you know, he's kind of close to the Farm Bureau and whatnot. Yeah, because he was in favor of right to farm. Is is he going to be a difficult opponent for Republicans to, like, single out as, like, a bleeding heart liberal in the general because he's taken some conservative positions even after he became a Democrat? Sure. Well, there's... there's, uh there's issues relating to life, stem cell research. Um, for the most part, he, he likes to campaign like 
he's a conservative mm -hmm. uh, because Missouri, by and large, even though we have a Democrat governor right now and other Democrat state officials, the people of Missouri are generally very conservative, whether they call themselves Republicans or Democrats. So uh, he's a he's a politician and he's going to he's going to campaign the way he feels like he needs to campaign in order to get votes. And he knows that he has to sound like a conservative. Jay Nixon sounded like a conservative in 2012. He's a big, I think, undercurrent of this governor's race going to be an issue of leadership because the current government, the, the current governor over the last years, his leadership has been called into question, especially after Ferguson and some other things. And I think that the question for all six people running is, how would you handle a crisis like that different? How are you going to handle mm -hmm. the racial disparities in St. Louis and elsewhere differently? How are you going to be able to command a present differently than the current governor? Is that, first of all, do you think that's going to be an issue? And what do you think any of the gubernatorial candidates could say that that would put them in a different posture than the current governor on that issue. Oh, they could they could say almost anything and be in a different posture than our current governor. Um, it, it is definitely going to be an issue. Uh, this whole issue of leadership. Um, you look at you look at uh, Governor Nixon's response to the refugee, the Syrian refugee. Uh, he put out a statement that was basically a non-statement, and it was, well, we're just here's my position is we just have to do whatever the federal government says. We have to rely on them. When people are looking for leadership, they're looking for you to take a stand or actually take a position, not actually pass the buck, which is exactly what he did during the whole Ferguson situation when he was actually asked if the buck stopped with him. He couldn't even answer the question. So I think that uh, I think that our our slate of candidates could say almost anything and sound better as far leadership wise than our current governor. And uh, if they if they want to get elected and now all of them do, they're certainly going to take advantage of the fact um uh, that we have a governor right now who has just been has a total deficit in leadership. Now anybody can say anything and sound good, but the difference is could they actually move people to change things? Like I mean, even if even if Nixon had handled everything right rhetorically, it could have still been the same result because it people aren't going to listen to him. So how does how do how do you been. change that course? Well, let's essentially, look at Peter Kinder for example. Uh, governor Nixon was almost a wall during the whole Ferguson thing. The whole Ferguson situation. Well, the first few days. He the, was the here first by few days. Thursday. Yeah. yeah. Right. But still, by the first few days, you know, there, we had lots of chaos ensuing in the first few days. Um, Peter Kinder, on the other hand, when he makes his announcement that he's going to run for governor, he does it from Ferguson with people from Ferguson. That right there sets him apart from our current governor. And in the absence of leadership, uh, Peter Kinder was actually on television, on Fox News and other news programs trying to offer leadership where there currently was none being offered by our governor. Now, from the position of lieutenant governor, there's only so much you can do because that, that right. role doesn't have a lot of constitutional authority. Which is probably why you're not going to run for that one either, I would imagine. <laughs> well, I'm, well, I'm going to continue. Let's okay. segue into that. Yeah. So I, I think that right now, I think that I, it's almost like Governor Nixon is trying to hand Republicans this next uh, election on a silver platter because he has demonstrated everything that a governor should not do when it comes to leadership under crisis. Now, as Jason mentioned, you're, you'll be entering into your last bid for re-election in your current post. Um, are, looking ahead, I mean, some people have, you know, touted you as, as a contender for a number of potential electoral jobs, either regionally or statewide. Uh, or what or it, federally. Yeah. Or what are you looking at? Um, That would be a, a little bit difficult to say right now, only because uh, I'm committed to fulfilling the obligation that I've given to the people sure. in my district. But I, I'll say this: uh, I I will pursue um, 
any opportunity to continue serving the public. I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old. So since I was 17, I've always had a heart for service, whether it's been through the military or, or uh, through government, through policy. I, uh, I, there's two places where I think I have uh, kind of a strong suit, and that's in the role of uh, efficiency or accountability. Okay. Um, through my work as a chairman of the government efficient, uh, government on committee on efficiency, and also through a policy, just through regular legislative work. So, might you be looking at state auditor in 2018? Maybe, maybe. I just, I, I, am a Christian. I believe God can run my life better than I can. So, this is something that I'm just going to have There's to. There's a lot about. of what ifs, as we were talking about before the show. If Blaine Luke Demeyer runs for the U.S. Senate, that's an open seat, which you would be joining 300 other Republicans running for. But you, people have said you'd be a, a top tier candidate for that. State auditor is another yeah, example. Yeah, because now a Democrat holds it. Um, and, um, you know, who knows? Maybe you could run for president of the United States. There's already like 15 candidates for that. Well, whatever it is I do, I just want to make sure that I'm an advocate for the principles that help make this country great, individual freedom and sound financial principles. Those are two things that I think are going to protect the people of our state and the, pe- and the people of our nation uh, and uh, put us in a position to take advantage of good prosperity and freedom. We'll make sure to have you on in a couple years, and we'll have to ask you again, and we'll probably get a more specific answer. Thank you so much for coming in. To close us off, to close us out, stlpublicradio.org is where you read all of our stories. I can be followed at Jay Rosenbaum. Joe can be followed at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow uh, Representative Kurtman's very popular Twitter account at... Paul Kurtman. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. Can we get much higher?